For today's opening sponsored section, a quick horror story brought to you by Riverside. My first ever podcast was for a former employer, a VC firm, and when I finally convinced my three bosses, the partners, to greenlight my very first podcast idea, it was a big deal. The stakes only got higher during the first interview, too, because the partners had asked one of the most successful, busy CEOs we'd invested in for his precious time, spend time with me, a novice podcaster. What could go wrong? Well, the interview itself went great. But afterwards is where things went wrong. I opened the audio and it was a disaster. All kinds of weird drops and robo voices. Entire sections were unusable. And why? Because I was using tools built for conference calls, not show production. Big mistake. Today, I avoid the stress because I use Riverside, both for Unthinkable and all my shows. Riverside is the easiest way to record podcasts and video in studio quality, all from your browser, from anywhere in the world. Plus, you can even clip your content for social media right from their platform. Plans start at just eight bucks a month, and you can try their tools for free to get started. Visit riverside.fm to learn more. Early on in my career, I worked for companies like Google and HubSpot in sales and marketing jobs, and I was presented with a choice, sometimes overtly by someone else, but mostly implicitly based on just what I saw unfolding in the workplace. It seemed to me like you could develop your career in two different directions. You could be strategic or creative, analytical or creative, basically anything that sounded like very important business knowledge or creative. So I picked shocker of all shocks, creative. I also experienced a few moments that validated this assumption and this false choice, and it is a false one, which we'll get to. For example, when I worked for HubSpot, I was leading the content team, and I was early in my managerial experience as a young professional. I remember standing in front of the team, asked by the CMO to present the progress being made developing our blog's audience. And I found in Google Analytics a nice, neat chart that showed the tendency of people to return to our website, repeat visitors. And there was this nice chart that showed visitors who visit one time, visitors who visit twice, visitors who visit three times. And way down the list, there was visitors who visited nine through 15 times. That bar was the biggest. Now, here's the thing. Of course, it was the biggest because it combined a bunch of numbers. It combined a bigger cohort of people. But what I did was say, aha, our key is to get people to visit nine or more times. Why? I have no idea. The line was biggest. So we want more people in the smaller cohorts to be in the biggest cohort. Yeah, this makes no sense. I understand. I understand that you listening are thinking, Jay, this makes no sense. What are you even talking about? I know, I know. But I presented it as this very smart insight that I'd found in Google Analytics, and it made no sense. So whether it was that, which I only realized was ridiculous later and felt embarrassed later, or future ideas that I pitched to bosses at any company or clients that didn't work, I did experience several moments in my career, maybe not as embarrassing as the HubSpot one, but similar failures. I experienced moments in my career that seemed to validate There's a fork in the road. Which will you take? Will you be very important in the business world or will you be creative? We all encounter scenarios where we don't succeed or we're given a false choice or it doesn't feel good when we try something or there's a cultural narrative that points us in one direction over another at the expense of the skills necessary to pursue the other path. And what this does is it highlights something that we are bad at versus what we're good at or so goes the narrative. 
the story running in our minds about who we are and what we're capable of doing starts to calcify, sometimes incorrectly. It's not true to reality. And when our aim is to create work that resonates, that somehow impossibly causes someone to stop in their tracks and go, this, this project is for me, this brand, this company, this individual. I love this. I'll subscribe to it, buy it. I'll take that job. I'll refer others to whatever it is you, my dear listener, are creating. When that is our daunting task professionally, we need a little useful self-delusion that we can do things or at least learn them. But lurking just below the surface is a very real, very troubling psychological phenomenon that's been subtly growing in us our entire lives. And if we can learn to spot it, we can combat it and unleash the very best of what we have to offer as a result. That's what we're exploring today in this new episode of The Concept. The Concept is an unthinkable miniseries about the simple ideas that forever change how we see the world. Buried in books and the sciences and the minds of amazing thinkers are all kinds of named ideas, heuristics, and frameworks, concepts that help explain how the world works. These ideas don't sound like the typical advice we get in our work. It's not the seven steps for growing your business, the one simple secret to success, or which hot new trend you should know. Instead, these ideas sound like Goodhart's Law, or Telic versus Paratelic, the Quest Matrix, or the Recency and Primacy Effects. And while some ideas help us, these concepts change us. Once you know their names and how they work, you'll see them appearing everywhere all around you. That's a concept called the Bader-Meinhof Phenomenon, by the way. So welcome to The Concept, a series within Unthinkable to help you improve your vision so you can improve your work. Today's concept is learned helplessness. In just a bit, we'll define the concept, get some important context about it, and then try to apply it to our work of making things that matter. But before we get there, let's talk about some typical scenarios where this idea of learned helplessness shows up in the world. Getting us started is unthinkable producer, Alana Nevins. Alana, what's the scenario? All right, we have a few scenarios. Let's say I've taken three math tests and I failed all of them. I'm gonna assume I'm really, really bad at math. Or I'm trying to quit smoking and I've tried, you know, a few times over the years and I found it impossible to quit. So I think it's impossible. I will always be a smoker. Or from my own personal experience, I keep getting kicked out of the kitchen because my mom doesn't want me in and hovering (laughs) around. And I assume that I'm a really bad cook. And so I don't really pursue making things in the kitchen. Right. And, and, you know, you see this a lot in, in people's personal lives. It affects, you know, weight loss or body image or uh, dietary changes, things like that, fitness. Obviously, it's like, you know, I've tried different things and, you know, I'm just going to give up on trying. And yeah, I think, again, the story of who we are and what we're capable of calcifies and whether or not it appears in your workplace. I think this idea of learned helplessness affects us in all aspects of life. And what we're trying to do today is once we define it, apply it specifically to our work. So I understand those scenarios. A couple more come to mind from my experience. This is a weird one. This is rooted in science, I'm sure. But when people ask you how you prefer to learn, like people have asked me this before, you know, taking a new job, being a young employee, maybe teachers in school, how do you prefer to learn? Do you prefer to read about something? Are you a visual learner? Trial and error and practice, you know, do you learn by doing? And it's like, 
I don't know, but I'm going to try to offer up an answer. But even worse, it's like, because I'm forced to pick one, you know, I would pick doing. I think I learned by doing. And anyone who's listened to the show for a while might agree. Jay, you seem like someone who learns by doing. But because I'm forced to answer now in my head, it starts to create this story that if I'm tasked with learning through reading, then I'm helpless at that. I don't actually learn by reading about something or being lectured to, right? It's like, I have to try it. I have to do it. That may or may not be true, you know, but it's like, I've learned helplessness, not even by failing at reading or failing at attending lectures, but just by a simple question being asked of me and me having to pick, it's a false choice. Or another one that's actually a little bit more poignant and, and perilous. We bought a house in May and mm. my narrative goes, I'm not handy. I can learn to be handy, except I've learned through a few failed attempts at being handy that at least in those specific instances or, you know, in that specific context that I wasn't in that moment. Right. And so I've learned this helplessness. I am not handy. Mm -hmm. So those are some scenarios Mm -hmm. that popped up from my mind. All right. Now that we know some different ways that this concept shows up in our lives, let's get more clarity about the idea itself. It's time to define it, hear about its origin and talk about how the concept really works. Okay, let's start with the definition. A condition in which a person suffers from a sense of powerlessness as a result of traumatic events or persistent failure. So in other words, it's when a person or animals think that a bad situation is unchangeable or inescapable because they've failed in the past. Right, there's a conditioning that happens sometimes and often implicitly. It's not like you're enrolled in an experiment. I personally first learned about this idea of learned helplessness in researching for my first book, Break the Wheel. And the experiment that I learned about was something called, or the concept I learned about that supports learned helplessness was called Pike Syndrome. Might be a subset of learned helplessness maybe, or another way of referring to it. So the phrase Pike Syndrome comes from, I think the 1870s in Germany, where a group of scientists ran an experiment involving a type of fish called the pike, which is a predatory fish. And so they had a tank and a pike in the tank and they dropped some minnows in. And predictably, the pike eats the minnows right away. But if you lowered those minnows into the tank surrounded by glass, the pike can't see the glass. And so it just starts smashing up against it in this like futile attempt to eat the minnows. And it'll do this over and over and over and over again, sometimes for hours until it gives up, almost like it's decided, I guess I can't eat these minnows. And then you can remove the glass and the minnows can swim freely all around the tank, undisturbed by the pike. So essentially tasty little morsels are swimming right in front of his nose and he doesn't budge because he has learned something about these minnows. I can't eat them. He's learned helplessness. So I use this idea of Pike syndrome to describe how in our work, we might try to be creative or try to go against the conventional norms of a big company or an industry or what what you're supposed to do in a certain situation. And if we fail or not, it's almost moot. It's like we're just told up front, don't even bother questioning best practices. Don't even bother trying to innovate or be creative here because look, all these people before you have proven that this is the best practice. And so rather than use our own firsthand knowledge of the world and what we have learned or what we see or what feels right to us, our intuition, in other words, the tasty morsels in front of our nose, Rather than use that stuff, we kind of like search for some vagary, this generalized idea of what you're you're supposed to do. 
you know, the punchline there is finding best practices is not actually the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. And the only way to do that is to put the you back into the equation, is to start trusting yourself again. So I, I was fascinated by this idea of learned helplessness through the narrow lens of Pike syndrome. My question, like where that research left me after my book was how the broader idea of learned helplessness actually works in the brain or in the world. So Alana, what did you find? Okay, so it starts with a dog experiment. Oh, wow. And some of these dogs did get hurt a little bit, but... So we're... Okay, so warning here, there's some animal cruelty involved in... There's a little bit. There's... Yeah. In the 1970s, there were two psychologists, Martin Selgman and Stephen Mayer, and they did a dog experiment. They had three groups of dogs. So in the first group, there were dogs that were in a harness and they were just kind of running around having fun. In the second group, there were dogs with harnesses that were given random electric shocks, but they could stop the shocks themselves by pressing a lever. The dogs could? The dogs could. Okay. In the third group, the dogs also were in harnesses. They were running around and they were each paired with a dog from the second group and getting the same electric shocks. And the electric shocks were stopping if the dog in the second group stopped them. They had no control. Just so I can understand all three groups. So the first group, they're in harnesses, no electric shocks. They're running around having a good time. The second group, they're receiving random electric shocks, which they themselves could stop by pressing a lever. The third group is also going to get random shocks. But each of those in the third group has a corresponding sort of buddy over in the second group. And it's only when that second group presses the lever that the third group buddy stops feeling the shock. So, okay. Right. All right. Cruel to the third group. Wow. Very, very cruel. So yeah, the, the dogs in the third group have no control. So part two of this experiment. So we've taken all these dogs that were in the groups and we're putting them in a big crate and there is a barrier they could jump over so they could escape if they wanted to. All they have to do is jump to the other side. So dogs in group one jump over. They're like, oh, there's a way to get out of this. Dogs in group two jump over. Dogs in group three just curl up and whine and cry. Oh, puppies. Because they have learned helplessness. Right. Oh, God. This, I've had dogs growing up. This is, as much as I was trying to joke around, it was, it was a self-preservation thing. So group three learned helplessness kicked in. And in this new scenario, they didn't even bother to look for a solution. And what's so fascinating is it wasn't another shock scenario. It was they had to jump over a wall or jump over a barrier and, and ostensibly easily could but did not. Wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. A similar experiment is done to humans as well. Not with shocks, though, with noise. Okay. So there are three groups of students. The first group is not even exposed to noise, to loud noises They're at just all. hanging out in a room somewhere. They're just hanging okay. out. Yeah. The second group is exposed to loud noises, which are unsignaled. They don't know when they're coming. So similar to those dogs, there's there's no sense of when the the shock or the noise is about to come. Got it. So you just get jumpy and fray your nerves. Exactly. But this group, the second group, can also control. They could push a button. Okay. And then there's a third group 
that just gets these loud unsignal noises and has no control over it. And they're probably and they're each are they each paired with no because it's not shocks. They're not paired. So there's they're just three different groups. Got it. So three groups of students. Group one just hanging out. They're the control. Group two is uh, random noises, but they can stop those noises by pressing a button. Group three is random noises. No means to stop it. No control. Right. Eventually, they're all asked to do some exercise, like a a written exercise. And group three does like really horribly. Like group two sometimes is turning the noise off and sometimes isn't. But because they know they could control it, they're not bothered by it. And group three is so irritated and frustrated that they do really bad on this written exercise. So just so the written exercise is the human equivalent of the dogs in a crate jumping over a barrier where it's like kind of unrelated, but you're you're on the hook for something. Yeah. So basically all of this is to say that learned helplessness is something that can physically change your brain. It can decrease your serotonin, so all those feel-good chemicals in your brain. It can increase your cortisol, which is your stress. It could also increase your emotion. So it really is just like frying your brain and making it harder to just process things in kind of a a calmer, (laughs) calmer way. I'm getting stressed just hearing about this. So essentially the third group in both the dogs and the humans, having had no control, learned helplessness, right? So they literally learned to be helpless when presented with another problem that took some kind of initiative for them to solve unrelated to the shocks or the noises and yet they did not go after it because all the examples we were using is like i was told to get out of the kitchen i must not be a good cook i failed to present you know data intelligently i must have to choose the creative path versus the analytical path in my career it was like very much everything was in line with like the thing i failed at equals the thing i'm bad at what we're saying here though what they're finding is when you learn helplessness in one thing, it actually affects your brain such that it applies elsewhere or potentially all over in the way you show up in the world. Yeah, it's really can be really damaging. And just as an aside, like this is something that can be a result from traumatic events, from abuse, from different types of violence that people might experience. That is not something that we're going to be talking about today. It's the extreme version of of what we are talking about. Yeah. So the the trauma that actually leads to the way you change as a result of violence or abuse. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it seems to me that there are some key attributes or features or traits to watch out for to understand or identify learned helplessness. What, What do you think those are? Or did the studies actually conclude that? They did. So there are a few key features. One is becoming passive in the face of trauma. Well, we might add even in the face of challenge, right? Or in the face of challenge, right. Yeah, an, an obstacle, something something that feels difficult that you need to summon yourself to overcome. And it could be something as small as like trying to cook a nice meal or trying to give a presentation. Like all of these things just feel insurmountable. Right. So number one, becoming passive in the face of a trauma or challenge that is now presented to you. Number two is difficulty learning that you could have control in the face of challenges, not knowing that you can ask for help or that there are other ways to approach something or navigate it. You, you stop feeling like you have a level of agency. Right. 
And then the third one is that it could increase your stress levels, which also seems pretty apparent in these dogs experiences and in the humans experiences, those seemed very, very stressful. Right. And so we see this and, you know, this is why, you know, I'll look at somebody who's a writer, for example, and some writers will say something or ask questions. And I'm like, you're asking this question as if you just want me to say yes and reassure you, but you're such a prolific writer. Like what's going on? So it's almost like you can't even spot these things until you feel like you know someone a little bit better because this stuff, this learned helplessness shows up as a lack of self-esteem or low motivation or, you know, they don't persist in the face of something being difficult. You know, sure, maybe that leads to failure, but I think it's like I'm convinced that I'm inept right? It's like, I'm convinced it's something about me. I am not good at that thing. I can't persist here. Or, you know, I'd like to get better at performing on camera. And it seems like it just, it's so hard. Like, please, Alana, tell me, does it get better? It's like, that's, it's like not, that's not a useful question, really. But like, you're asking that because you want the reassurance, you want the confidence, because you don't have it. And look, there's myriad reasons why that might be. But what we're saying today is a very common one when you learn to spot it is learned helplessness. I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly how I would describe them. But if I talk to, say, 50 writers in a year, just like career chats or hanging out, I feel like I could try to sort of group what's been going on in their lives or, you know, what their life experience or outlook on life is. Like like there are types of people where I see learned helplessness showing up more. So that leads me to believe, and this, this does feel obvious, but I'm curious what the science says. It feels like learned helplessness affects different people differently or different types of people differently. Yeah, it's less different types of people. It's more about something called the explanatory style. Oh. And what explanatory styles are is basically how you talk to yourself about what you're experiencing. Uh, okay. So it's like self-talk. You write what I call the story running in your head or your own personal narrative. Yeah, got it. There are a few different parameters that... Selgman and Mayer came up with around understanding what type of explanatory style you have. And there are some explanatory styles that are ultimately more pessimistic and some that are more optimistic. And the ones that are more pessimistic obviously will be more prone or more vulnerable to learned helplessness. Got it. So what what are these different explanatory styles? They're more parameters. Okay. So there are three different parameters for how you can explain a situation to yourself. So one of them is around stability. So how much do you think what is going on in a situation is permanent or is temporary? Do you think things will get better or worse or that they'll stay exactly the same? Got it. So stable versus unstable is one way that you can determine your explanatory style. The second one is global versus local. So do you think that something that is happening in your life is affecting all aspects of your life? For example, if you are someone that believes in luck, if you're like, well, I am someone with good luck or I'm someone more likely with bad luck. And so if something bad happens, you think, well, everything else in my life is going to go bad. So it's a global sense of explaining to yourself what you're experiencing. Before we recorded, I told you how... Um, someone I live with who is not one of my two children, but is an adult, someone <laughs> that I live with spilled 10 ounces of orange juice all over my Mac and, uh, RIP mm -hmm. that Mac. And you were like, well, mercury is in retrograde, <laughs> right? And so that would be an example of, of a global explanatory style. Yeah. That's related to the last one also, which is 
internal versus external. So the way that I talked about that was very external. I was like, this was not in your control. Mercury's in retrograde. Anything could happen. That's a very optimistic way that I looked at that, but it would probably be different if I was talking about my own computer. Okay, so just just to make sure we don't skip too far ahead, because you mentioned there's internal versus external. We're still on, we had yep. stable versus unstable. How much of, of this situation is is permanent, right? Like that's how much do you believe this is permanent? Global versus local, How in other words, how pervasive is a problem or a specific thing. And you mentioned a good example is, in general, you think you have good luck or bad luck, right? That's a global way of explaining your place in the world. If you think I, I have bad luck, then this is in line with a very global, like everything is happening this way. What's something that's local? What would be a local example? A local example would be a negative local example could be like, I won a great award and that doesn't really mean anything about any other aspect of my life. Oh, interesting. So this is not good versus bad. We're not saying stable and unstable. One is good, one is bad. Global and local, one is good, one is bad. It's very contextualized. So because you because what I just yeah. said is like you can ha- you can have a global story that somehow uplifts your work. Like mm-hmm. I'm generally optimistic. I don't ignore the bad. This is me personally. I, I don't ignore the bad, but I believe that there's a light at the end of the tunnel in the bad and that the light will win out or we will reach the light. So that's a global view. So that might help me approach projects better, for example. Obviously, there might even be some bad mixed in there, but that, that's a, a positive global, for example. But a negative global is I'm an unlucky person. Mm-hmm. And so then you can have the local version might have positive and negative permutations, right? I'm being overly precise mm-hmm. here. There's obviously a gradation, but a negative or maybe not that useful local is I won this award, but it doesn't really say anything about my abilities versus like, mm-hmm. yeah, I won this award and this affirms that I should keep pursuing this career path with confidence or I have this skill set mm-hmm. necessary to promote positive change in the world or what have you. That's yeah, that's a good explanation of it. So just to recap the two, stable versus unstable, global versus local. These are two of the parameters for the your explanatory style or how we explain or you come up with the story running in your head. Alana, you already hinted at the third parameter, which you said is internal versus external. What, what does that one mean? That one is whether or not you see an event as being within yourself or outside of yourself. So if you're having a really difficult day, are you like, this is all my fault? Or you're like, well... Mercury's in retrograde, so of course this orange juice somehow fell onto my computer. I don't know how. If you're approaching it as it's your fault, that will make you more stressed. It's either all in your control or not in your control at all. So this is interesting too, because within each of these two extremes, you could see you know positive or negative uses. Like if it's internal, you can make a claim that like my success is my doing alone, and you ignore the fact that like you're the product of your circumstances at birth and your privilege. You are, are you also benefit from the society you live in. And hey, by the way, your team helped you get there too, boss. Like don't forget the team. So you know you can overemphasize that it's internal. That it, you you know you personalize why something is happening, why a success happens, or even you know also why a negative thing happened. So there's good and bad um, to either of these. What I wonder here is as you look across these three parameters stable versus unstable, global versus local, internal versus external, are these changeable? Like if we have this story that's developed, even the way I started this episode, I said, you know, these moments seem to have colored a story in my head. So it feels like the story is changeable. So I guess the question I have for you isn't so much, is this stuff changeable? Can we edit the story and therefore improve our outlook and or or our work? My question is how? 
Yeah. So Selgman came up with something that's almost the opposite of learned helplessness, which is learned optimism. So there are ways that we can be explaining these events to ourselves that are more positive, can be creating a more positive internal dialogue or more positive self-talk to help us break free from the cycle of helplessness. There are lots of different ways. Therapy is like a really central part of doing that for lots of people. One of the ones that I thought was most relevant for listeners would be goal setting. Mm. So they talk about how goal setting is a really good way to help with behavior changes in a positive way. So doing, you know, smart goals. So things that are measurable and actionable. I don't actually know. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, I know smart. I know smart's a thing. I know smart goals are things. It's a it's a good <laughs> way of setting yeah. goals. So doing things like that yeah. and being really trying to be more mindful like a lot of this is about this level of awareness and probably questioning these more negative totally this more negative self-talk and questioning the way that that maybe just because that one project didn't go well doesn't mean it is impossible for me to do it again and just basically approaching with more curiosity than we have before Right. It's like that's, how, you know, that's why a testing mentality and inquisitive or investigative mindset is so powerful, especially in creative work, because you're like, I tried a thing. It didn't work. And, you know, that could break one of two ways. It could be like, well, <laughs> I suck at this mm-hmm. and all the different permutations of where you, you know, where that explanatory style comes from. It's going to depend on where you fall on those different um, spectra. But the other road you could take is, ah, OK, it didn't work. Why? I learned something. What did I learn? How could I change the next time? How could I improve the next time? Right. And that's what causes so many people to stop shipping creative work is, you know, they see something in their mind. It doesn't end up matching what comes out. And so there's like that giant gap that, you know, Ira Glass made famous, the gap between your your taste and your skills. The way to close it is you do a lot of work. So you have to persist. It's very easy to learn helplessness to say, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. I'm done. I quit. And a lot of people quit in the middle when if they just continue to persist, they might actually succeed or they find their own personal style or voice or, you know, they find their groove in some way. So this learned optimism, I really, really love. And I think of it in my own terms as an independent creator and an extreme extrovert at the same time, I can often feel very, very lonely. Mm. And so part of me starts thinking this is a lonely path. I am a lone wolf, even though I dislike it. My job is lonely. I, mm. I, this is how I feel because of that. Like it just calcifies. Or the goal idea in my world manifests as more of like an annual theme. So every year as I'm planning out my work, I pick a theme that I think will helpfully focus me on something proactive. Last year's theme was get back to story. Because when the pandemic first hit, I started reacting and doing lots of things I thought would help sort of preserve my cause or build my business or drive revenue because I couldn't be speaking at events. Mm -hmm. And I thought 2021, get back to story. 2022 is dedicated to this loneliness narrative. And so the idea here is go calmly, go with others. That's a theme I have for 2022. Go calmly, go with others. I'd love to collaborate on Unthinkable. Alana. Mm-hmm. You're a part of that solution, mm-hmm. right? Uh, doing other, doing these mini series, even even though it's not a narrative, right? Doing something with you on the microphone, looking mm-hmm. at you and collaborating with you behind the scenes, that is profoundly energizing, and it comes back to the theme, right? So I'm learning optimism. I can do collaborative projects with people. Go calmly, go with others is is instead of a smart goal or other ways of orienting or reorienting a story. I do it through annual themes. I love that. I also, similar to you, have a 
I don't do New Year's resolutions, but I do a word of the year. Last year's word was patience, which (laughs) felt necessary. (laughs) And this year was present or present. So just really being in the moment, but also presenting myself. So this is also part of getting myself out there and using my voice more in different ways. I love that. I love that. Of course, though, the real reason we're excited about this concept is this stuff, right? The science is interesting. The applications in our life, very interesting. But, you know, people are listening and we're building this show about our work and being creative and resonating with others. So the real reason we're excited about this concept isn't just the trivia, uh, although who doesn't love a nice cocktail party with all that trivia. I don't know why that became a cliche. Like growing up, people go like, here's a fun fact for your next cocktail party. (laughs) And I was like, what (laughs) cocktail parties exist that you like randomly pop off trivia with your new friends? Like you would just be like asked to leave. Like what? Anyways. Oh, I would do that. Really? I would ask. Oh, I love that stuff. Yeah. You would not invite me to a cocktail party. Hold on. I need to know like what, how do you weave this kind of trivia into the real way you do it is like i just was listening to this podcast and then you could just really say anything you want <laughs> touche that is absolutely the catch-all if, as long as you say like while well, i was listening to a podcast people go oh okay because that could be about anything and, and this is going to be trivia related cool all right so <laughs> fine part of fine Great. you know what fine a lot of Part of the value of the series is the trivia, but also, and I hope more so, the real reason we're excited about today's concept of learned helplessness and learning about it is how it changes and improves our understanding of the world and how we see this world, because that, more than any list of tips and tricks or cheats and hacks, can radically improve the caliber of the work we can create. So let's end this episode by talking about how today's concept applies to our work. Well, I feel like we actually did already do this a little bit, but at least for me, what I'm really encouraged by is the ability not just to recognize it, because it's one thing to say, I feel like I have this helplessness or have someone call it out, but, but I'm most encouraged by the parameters. This ability to like give language, which is a big part of the whole concept series, but to give language in a more detailed way, not just to define the concept, but to give language to like how it shows up and how we harness and control it. We probably all agree as creative people, like the way we see the world and the stories running in our heads, that does affect us all the time mm-hmm. in, in big ways and small. But it's really subtle. It's, it's also hard to figure out what is the story running your head. And it's one thing to say, I grew up in this region of the country and therefore I vote for these types of politicians. It's an entirely different matter to say in all the minutia and the messiness of day to day work and career and all the decisions I made all the time, something about the way I see the world affects this. Right. It's a little bit out of reach. And so what feels more in reach for me is when I feel like I'm questioning myself or when I feel like the story running in my head is I am bad at something or I'm passive or I'm not asking for help, I can start to think, okay, am I perceiving this as permanent or impermanent? Is this fleeting or not fleeting? Is this stable or not stable? Is this pervasive everywhere and is it global or is it local? And then is it internal or external? And these are really helpful parameters because it gives simple everyday language to something that feels kind of, you know, in some ways cosmic. If you're talking about some of these global explanations, it's like, well, the fates or destiny are just the way I am. But in many ways, it just feels unspoken or subtle or ephemeral. So this gives form and function to something that is important 
but lacked it previously. So that, that to me is how I'm going to start to apply this to my work. And I'd encourage others to think about that too. Alana, what comes to mind when we talk about applying learned helplessness or our understanding of it anyway, to your work in, as a creative person? A big part of it is just one, knowing that I'm not alone in some of these yeah. feelings. Like there are literally decades of studies on this. Basically, I feel like I now have this like binder of facts that I could take to the negative self-talk in my head and be like, you know, you're not getting out of it this time. Like I have tools, I understand what you're doing and I could start fighting back against it a bit. And I, I think it also is giving me more ways to be curious internally about what aspects of things that I, as a creative, am afraid of doing? What can I actually approach in a new way? Understanding that learned helplessness is something that I have learned and that maybe I could learn optimism instead. Okay, so one more time. Today's concept, learned helplessness. A condition in which a person suffers from a sense of powerlessness as a result of traumatic events or persistent failure. We all do something complicated and daunting in many ways. Whatever we create, whether it's content or cultures, companies, or change in society, it's daunting to have someone else decide, I love what you're up to and I'll take an action as a result. And getting in our way of that, more so than what tools we need or trends we need to know about, what tips or tricks or cheats or hacks people say you got to try, getting in the way of that can often be the story running in your head. And right now, as a communicator, a creator, a storyteller, you and I might be thinking, I understand that, I embrace that, I have no idea how to influence that. But hopefully, if we first understand that learned helplessness is a thing, and second, understand the parameters of it, we can harness it. Because again, as creators, as communicators, as storytellers, the most important story we can tell is the one we tell ourselves. Thank you so much for listening. I, I think uh, we're starting to find our groove a little bit. This is the second ever episode of The Concept, and uh, we made a big change, which was to introduce more overt segmentation to this episode with the uh, musical stings in between. I think a another improvement we'd like to make is to probably tighten each segment and really get total clarity around both the concept's definition, so it sticks in your brain when you hear us say it, and then also all the different supporting like mini concepts, you know, like the parameters of learned helplessness. So thanks for coming along with us on this journey as we pilot this new idea of the concept. If you have any feedback at all, shoot me an email. I'm Jay at unthinkablemedia.com. And I'm also at Jay Akunzo on Twitter. I really love hearing from you. Big thank you to Alana Nevins for so much research and collaborative writing and editing and now co-hosting this series with me. Couldn't do this series without her. As an independent creator myself, I rely on the support from not just Alana, but from you. Every time you share the show, leave a review, or buy a book or my course on creating podcasts from my website, I'm able to keep making this show and keep it free to find and enjoy. So thank you so much for your support. I literally couldn't do this without you. And if you're looking for an easy way to keep in touch, consider joining my free newsletter. I send a new story every single week, all about the same ideas that we explore here on the show, but it's a bit more from my perspective, things I'm noticing, things I'm wondering, my first attempts at making sense of things through story and pulling out insights for our work from those stories. You'll be in good company with fellow subscribers from brands like the New York Times, the BBC, Adobe, and Salesforce, plus plenty of entrepreneurs, marketers, freelancers, and creators who get my emails every Friday. Visit jaconzo.com to subscribe or check your show notes for a link. We're back next week with a new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. 
See ya. This episode was sponsored by Riverside. Trivia question about this show for you. I've interviewed more than 200 individuals for about 150 original stories for Unthinkable. How many of those people do you think were interviewed in person, face-to-face? The answer? Seven. Yeah, seven. The rest were done virtually. I learned that you can actually build rapport virtually with your guest the way you can in person and record studio-quality audio remotely and create what I think and, and I hope that you can agree is a slightly above-average sounding show. You can do all that virtually. And I use Riverside to do it. Riverside lets you record both audio and video interviews. You get separate tracks recorded, and they don't use the same technologies, in other words, voice over IP, used by Zoom or Skype, that creates all those problems and robo-voices and drops. Instead, each track comes without any of that. Plans start at 8 bucks a month, and it's great for novice podcasters or the resource-constrained, but they're so powerful that even brands like Marvel, The New York Times, Spotify, TED, shows like How I Built This, and Gary Vee's podcast all use Riverside too. Learn more at riverside.fm.